Welcome back to another episode in our series on discussing the pandemic with nurses. This is what I kind of consider an untapped resource for knowledge on what's really going on. We've had these debates all over the place on social media about, is this right? Is this wrong? Are these mitigation strategies right or wrong? Is the information, the medical information they're giving us right or wrong? But what we're not really doing is spending a good amount of time talking to the people who work with patients or have worked with patients day in, day out, and have that medical expertise to weigh in on this discussion. So this series with nurses is all about that. And today we have our third interview with a nurse, and this is going to be a nurse who is not going to be anonymous, and this is going to be Laura Menard today with us. And she has a background in ICU critical care. And so we're going to really just discuss some of the same questions you've heard before, but opening up to a unique expression of that with what her particular background is. And I'm so grateful for the nurses that are willing to take the time to do this. Thank you so much, Laura, for being a part of this series with me. Thank you for having me. So let's start with the first question, which is, who are you as it relates to your medical background? Where have you come from? What is your expertise and skill set? And when did you get into nursing? And what other areas of medicine have you worked in maybe to develop your set of beliefs and experience? Yeah, thank you for asking. So I became a nurse in 2012 and I graduated with honors, went right into ICU and did about 18 months in ICU and then moved on to surgery. I did some hospice nursing on the side and also my last role in the conventional setting was as an advice nurse for Kaiser. And currently I am a board certified nurse coach. I work for myself and I also am a instructor. So I teach between 60 and 120 nurses every year how to become a coach and start their own businesses. I had two years as a personal assistant to a fantastic naturopathic doctor that has a functional medicine practice. So I had two years of functional medicine doing all of her new patient intakes. And that was really what shifted. I, I began to see the differences between two paradigms of thinking about health and the body. So the pandemic coming off the tail end of that two years was really interesting to witness. I can imagine. And I think a lot of times when people think of alternative medicine, they don't actually think of traditionally trained people. But a lot of people trained in traditional Western medicine have moved into alternative medicine. So it's interesting that people think you probably just don't have a background. If you're in alternative medicine, you don't have any kind of medical background or traditional schooling. But that's just not the case. No, no. In conventional medicine, there's a lot of things you don't get well from. And in functional medicine, there's a lot of things that you heal from. And so through my own healing journey and getting off of 13 meds at, at age 35 and becoming well, when conventional doctors told me I couldn't, I had that personal experience to draw from. And then as an advice nurse working in the conventional setting, I would have women with the same symptoms as me calling in. And if I gave them the advice that I thought could help them, I would get fired because you can't give any advice that doesn't include medications. And I think that's kind of the biggest discussion that we have in a holistic world, right, is just that the information is essentially being censored on some level all the time. And people don't really want to believe that, but the pandemic is a perfect example of what should be a completely objective medical discussion, 
turned into something that was really completely driven by behaviors that whoever's giving the message wants you to fall in line with. So essentially, whoever's controlling the information, they're going to you know, be giving you the information based on what behaviors they want from you. And even if this is an objective medical discussion, it's a virus or you know, this is just a simple contagious respiratory illness that we have, that should be something that is you know, devoid of you know, any censorship, of course, but that's not what we've seen in the last year, a year and a couple of months. And that takes me to my, my first question on COVID here is, from your experience, from the knowledge and skill set that you have developed over these years, in your medical opinion, do you think that the fear that was created through the COVID pandemic, especially in the first you know, several months, but it, it continues to today, do you think the fear that has been generated was warranted? Absolutely not. 1,000% not. And why not? Several reasons. First, in the first several months of the pandemic, I was the teacher of a lot of ICU nurses, a lot of ER nurses. They were empty. So they were getting laid off. Half of my nurses that I worked with were laid off during the first four to six months of the pandemic. If we were dying by droves, there would not be half of the nurses laid off because nobody was coming in. So that alone, just that one like little, that was my own little perch that I got to see. The average age of death, if this was a true pandemic, the average age of death of people who die from COVID-19 should not be the same average age of death that people that die from every other natural cause. There's just certain statistics that when put out should beg to have you feel actually safe, that it is a respiratory virus that for most people is not a big deal. But just witnessing the news and witnessing the way that we were given the information and the way that it was allowed to be given to us, I understand why the fear was so high for so many people. Well, right. And that's a good point that you bring up first here is that the average age of death. So if this is truly a pandemic, like you're saying, where you have arbitrary or random victims, that means everybody that gets exposed to it has an equal chance of dying. That could be a child, could be a healthy person in their 20s or 30s, could be you know, someone who's retired or could be an elderly, very elderly person. That is a type of illness or virus that you would expect to equally attack, equally kill. And then the mortality rate becomes very scary because at that point it could be anybody. And if you get it, you're definitely dying from it. But what you're saying, the actual average age of a typical person dying, and I think in some circumstances, the average age of death is even a little bit lower in regular life than it was for COVID patients, the average age being so high, this is something I kind of couldn't understand at the very beginning of this, because even in Italy, as the prime first example of where things started to go wrong, and I'll talk about that next, but in that case, they were all very, very elderly. Like it wasn't anywhere close to some middle of the road age. We're talking very elderly, higher than their life expectancy, which is just so interesting that the world went crazy over a circumstance where people have lived full lives. Like, and I posted about this this week, uh, this idea of mortality. I mean, you cannot cheat death. You cannot avoid death. It's inevitable. It's imminent for everyone. So somebody who's 90 years old, who is maybe, you know, a little sickly or has some underlying conditions, the fact that people are arguing 
about everything we have to do for the rest of the world to prevent death of somebody at that stage of their life really goes to show how disconnected we are from how the understanding of that circle of life works. Yes, every life matters, but at a certain point, you have to be okay with whatever the cause may be, whether it's the flu or another you know, unnamed respiratory virus. COVID was no different in the sense that it was just taking people and you know, killing people left and right, like you said, in droves. That wasn't happening. And nobody was really talking about that life expectancy and the age of the average patient or death. So I think that was a really good point that you bring up. Then you've got the reporting of deaths and that issue and how that basically inflated the numbers. When this all happened, were you a little curious or concerned with the fact that all deaths were being reported as COVID, even if they had these underlying conditions? That defies odds because I've had patients expire in my care in the ICU and I'm aware of the process of reporting death. And I think Senator Scott Jensen, I think was the one who really spoke out about this. Mm -hmm. And I heard it first from him and he was describing like what we were doing and that alone, that step, that decision to report a death dying with equating the same as dying from that right there. I knew that we would never know how many people actually died from COVID. And we still don't. We still don't. (laughs) Yeah. And my issue with that is these numbers are driving policy. Yes. So it's not like you can just say, oh, well, who cares? There was a reporting issue. You can't say that because this is actually affecting everybody's lives with the, the rules they are creating as a result of those numbers. This is what I equate it to. Okay. You know, like when you have a really bad sore throat and your doctor says, come in and get swabbed for strep. Well, I'm a carrier. Every time I'm swapped for strep, it is positive, whether I have a sore throat or I don't have a sore throat. And I will for the rest of my life. I'm a carrier. That doesn't mean I need antibiotics or that I'm sick. So what we're doing is we're having people who come in with other things. And if we swabbed everybody who came in for strep throat, and then every single carrier, we said they died from strep throat, we have a strep throat epidemic. Right. So that that doesn't make sense to me either. And, and there's a lot of doctors that we're not happy about that. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of nurses that weren't happy about that. But again, in the medical field, there is a narrative. And if you don't go along with it, you don't get treated well. So we have a lot of stifled medical professionals, unfortunately. Now, is that something that you've dealt with directly with the different nurses that you work with? Is this idea of people, especially in this last year, not feeling like they can be honest about their their beliefs or thoughts or, or feelings? Hundreds, thousands of messages. I can talk about what I believe because my family doesn't eat depending on whether I have that job or not anymore because I I have my own business and I'm so blessed for that. But if if I was the primary breadwinner and this was happening and I had to figure out, do I tell the truth or do I feed my family? You're asking human beings to do something pretty darn scary. And so I've been really blessed. And so I've had a lot of nurses speak out and say, thank you so much. I want to say something. I'm afraid I'm going to get fired or I have a very close family member who is in the ER right now and has been working bedside and, and she felt the same way. She's like, Laura, I can't, I can't be fired. And now what were they saying? What were the feelings that they had or the thoughts that they had that they didn't feel that they were okay to express? They were not having surges. Okay. So their ER was the same as it was every single year. Not everywhere. There were some nurses in different areas that it was really bad because there's no early treatment. 
and it's the only sickness in the history of mankind. We're like, stay home till you turn blue and then come in and then we'll intubate you. Mm-hmm. So there was nurses really concerned about there being no early treatment. There was nurses really concerned about all the, like not having enough PPE, if it was really that dangerous. I had nurses who would be exposed to a patient and they would move into a hotel or move into like a trailer away from their spouse for months because they were so afraid and then only have like one COVID death in their hospital in six months, which is less than their normal flu deaths in their hospital in one month. When flu went away and COVID is now COVID's everything and there's no flu, lots of nurses are like, this doesn't make sense. Hmm. We have no flu deaths. We're not swabbing for flu. Right, exactly. Nobody's really testing for that. So everything just gets automatically labeled. Hearing you talk about this kind of makes me angry for those that had to feel so afraid and were made to feel so afraid that they basically lost quality of their life, which in some of these cases, I'm thinking some of this trauma essentially is going to take so many years to get over because when you reprogram your brain to see everybody as dangerous and everybody as a threat, even if you're in the medical, and remember, these are nurses, we're talking about people who constantly work with sick people, never thought twice about it before. And now it's debilitating to them to where they can't live their lives without feeling like they need these layers of protection because now they're afraid of other humans. Does that make you mad in your line of work in this industry that this was done to them because so many of these women and men that are nurses are paralyzed with fear now? It makes me angry that our system is set up in a way that if you do not go along with the policies and procedures that come from the top down, that you will not be able to stay employed. So people would say, as an advice nurse, they'd say, Laura, like when I call in and I have this going on, like I'm not talking to you and your expertise. I'm like, no, you're talking to a book of protocols. Mm. If I veer off protocol, if I said anything about gluten or dairy, if I said anything about vitamin D, I could be fired. Even though I've done thousands of hours of research on alternative things and and totally got off medications and reclaimed my health, I'm unable to share that with you in this system. So that's just a micro of the macro of the system. The system has policies and procedures that come from top down. And I actually want to share something that I think is kind of insane. Mm -hmm. The idea of asymptomatic carriers, right? The wording of asymptomatic carriers was being written into protocols before the pandemic. That term had not been, had not happened before. And it, it began getting written into flu protocols yeah, make sure this, they could be an asymptomatic carrier. And we've never heard that term in nursing before. And that was just six months before the pandemic. Yeah, which is interesting, especially with something like the flu, which is so obvious if you are sick. Yes. Like that's like, it's such an obvious example. Like, yes, you're clearly sick. You feel it right from the beginning. Now, granted, we all know, and people that have any background in medicine or understanding of medicine understand the idea of pre-symptomatic carriers. But that's very different than an asymptomatic carrier because an asymptomatic carrier is basically telling people you'll never go on to have symptoms or they're going to be so mild you can't even notice them, which of course does not indicate the flu, but you're going to be contagious to everybody around you. And this can go on. And now they've said with COVID, this could be like for months. This idea is completely contrary to any other infectious disease or illness that's ever existed, ever Because to be asymptomatic, your viral load would have to be so low. Exactly. But they're saying that your viral load, even though so low that you don't have symptoms, it's high enough to be excreted through your breath. 
And infect other people. And infect other people. And so there's so many aspects of this. There are a lot of blessings that I see happening with medicine. For example, I held a webinar with my naturopath about COVID and I had 80 nurses come to it. Mm -hmm. And basically, because I had COVID and I actually had a really bad case, so I experienced it firsthand. And we know enough now to treat it early that nobody should be scared. Right. We know what pathways, we know how the dreaded cytokine storm happens. We know the pathways that the inflammation occurs on. There's no reason why we all shouldn't have things in our home right now, that if we got it and we were having any bad time, that we could treat it at home. And that there's enough nurses now starting to ask more. I think that non-crunchy nurses are actually becoming aware of terms like quercetin Mm -hmm. and zinc and vitamin D. Like, so in some ways it's woken them up because people were desperate enough to look for anything that they could do to protect themselves. And speaking of kind of combining what you're saying with the protocols and treatments, at the very beginning of this, one of my fascinations was all of the ventilators and the ventilator protocols that were in some cases, like parts of New York City, they were basically not, I don't want to say forced, but it was, it was an administrative decision that people that came in, if your oxygen levels dropped at all, regardless of if you were talking and, and fine and whatever, that people were intubated. And this happened obviously in Italy as well. And that was my earlier reference to Italy. With Italy and New York, when all of this happened, this is what really created mass panic. It was about ventilator shortages and people gasping for air and people assuming that if you got COVID, this was your fate. And I truly believe, like in the core of my being, that in the early months of this, the people that died in Italy, the people that died in New York, the majority of those people died from being unnecessarily intubated. And they were placed on ventilators before they should have been or for longer than they should have been. And there was almost a 95 to 100% mortality rate amongst people that were placed on them. There was no getting off of them. Now, they don't do that anymore because they obviously, you know, it didn't take, it took a couple months, but all of a sudden, like you said, there were medical professionals speaking out against it. And many of them were told to be quiet about it or not talk about it. And it became this big hush-hush thing. But during those early months, did you think the same? What was your thought process as you saw all the ventilating and all the intubating and the ventilators and this, the awful outcomes with everybody that was placed on them? What were your thoughts on that at the beginning of this? As an ICU nurse, you do not put anyone on a ventilator unless they're going to die if you don't. So the idea that we would put a walkie-talkie, we call them walkie-talkies, we would sedate and intubate someone who's walking and talking, even if their stats are low, that is insanity. So how did it happen to where that became the global treatment or protocol in the early stages of this, knowing what you're saying here and what other medical professionals knew, obviously, what would get people going in that direction? Being told that they have to. You know, I remember hearing Aaron's interview about how they would ventilate patients because they didn't want them coughing and like they wanted them more contained. So it was Mm. almost like a infection prevention, like spread of infection protocol, which that doesn't make sense either. But these people weren't coming off of the ventilators ever, almost ever. No. The experience that we had in Newark was why everybody was so scared. because That's all that we saw and heard. And that was medical mismanagement. I agree. And that was actually my next question was, do you think that there were people through this, through this process over this last year, that were unnecessary victims of this because of medical mismanagement. Absolutely. 
Is that ever going to be discussed, do you think? Um, I don't think so. I don't think it would be allowed to be discussed. In some aspects, like I think about ER docs and nurses and everybody kind of doing the best they can. So like just the everyday ER doc, the everyday nurse, the everyday medical professional, like facing this, I don't think that all of them decided that they wanted to be on the wrong side of history. I think that the decisions that happened extremely high up were bad decisions that Mm -hmm. then were protected to look good. Right. As in, we've already taken this action step. There's no way we can come back and admit this at this point so that we have to just stick with it. Yes. Because what would that mean? We'd be sued. We'd be. So, and I'm sure that that happened pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And then just hearing, you know, all the heroic nurses that did speak out and all the nurses that did get fired and all the doctors that did get fired. It's like, then you hear 10, 15, 20, 30 stories like that. And you're at your facility thinking you're trying to make the decision. Am I going to speak up or not? It's a big decision. And there's very few people willing to do things that will affect their family's financial security. And understandably so. And understandably so. Mm -hmm. But we need thousands of people willing to do that. Right. And then once, you know, the end of the year came around, so this initial couple of months, it's COVID panic. There are all the ventilator issues. They finally kind of come out of that. And like you said, lots of hospitals around the country were empty, like completely empty. I had so many nurses, probably thousands at this point that had commented and acknowledged that there were just was nothing going on at their hospital. They've never seen census numbers this low, et cetera. Right. After that, we go into the fall, we've got all these additional surges slash waves slash or potential. It's always this hypothetical, the surge is coming. The next wave is coming. And it was always like, you can't get too comfortable. It's about to get crazy. But that really never happened most of the country. And then the vaccine starts to come out the end of the year. And now we're looking at, you know, younger and younger age groups with the universal rollout. What are you hearing from nurses you're connected with or in the community that you're in about people responding to the vaccine and whether or not they are able to be honest about negative reactions as a result of being vaccinated when people come into the hospital or come to seek medical care? Well, I just spoke to a nurse who's currently working as an advice nurse. So she's the one who's going to be getting all the calls before they people even go to the ER. Like if people think they're COVID positive or are COVID positive or sick or just had the vaccine. And so people are calling in with a lot of cycle issues. They're calling in with a lot of blood, like young people are getting blood clots. And you're not allowed to ask how many days has it been since you've been vaccinated or how many weeks has it been since you've been vaccinated. So you're not allowed to connect the dots for them in that role. And they're not going to ask if they've even been vaccinated, right? No. And that's, again, a protocol administrative issue? Yes. Because because if a nurse asks that, well, if you call and you present your sign or symptoms, you say, well, I'm having, I've been bleeding like nonstop. My periods won't stop or I'm whatever you're calling with. Mm-hmm. And the nurse is not allowed to say, okay, tell me more about were you recently vaccinated, even though we know that there's a correlation. So because if the nurse asks that, then the patient is going to wonder, is going to wonder if it's connected. Right. And so now what if the patient says, I just got my vaccine last week and here are the symptoms I'm experiencing. Is it going to be an honest discussion between that nurse and the person calling about how many days was it? When did you start feeling these symptoms? Is it going to be notated in a chart if that person comes in? 
or is it going to be ignored? It depends on the nurse. I think that there's probably ER nurses doing that because they're not recorded. But phone nurses, like phone triage nurses, I think that they'd be walking a fine line, depending. And this is a medical issue. This is a medical discussion because it's a medical intervention. Yes. And now that we're having 12-year-olds getting it, at this point, and this is, I've been really thinking about this this week, you know, we talk about all these things about public health and public policy. Now, public health, the public is made up of individuals. Right. Like, when did we stop thinking that we should worry about individual health because healthy individuals will create healthy public? Mm -hmm. And so now we're giving 12-year-olds something for an illness that has no risk to them. Right. And something that is not going to last very long anyway, so they'd be required to get it very frequently. And if we're already seeing this level of reactivity based on one to two doses, this is without the third booster and without the annual shots... Like, we don't have any clue what this is going to do after five years or whatever. Obviously, we have no understanding of that. Shouldn't we be having an honest discussion if somebody says, I just got the vaccine and this is what's happening and they're calling the hospital or coming in with a heart issue or something else? Why are we ignoring or why why is there a stigma, I should say, about being honest about this? Because isn't the patient's health the primary concern or shouldn't it be? I think that there's many doctors that have heard the word safe and effective so many times that they cannot comprehend that there could be any connection through something that is named a vaccine and an effect. Yep. No, that makes sense. And I mean, again, probably all of that on some levels, a type of priming in itself of spending years telling medical professionals that side effects don't happen to anything except for certain pharmaceutical drugs and only those. And therefore, any other issue has to come from somewhere else. And it's just such a, it's a disservice to the community because you're not really getting to the bottom of it. We could be helping people, saving people, keeping others from having the same issue. But like, like you said kind of earlier, they've stuck with it for so long. And I remember hearing this, I think it's from J.B. Hanley when we interviewed him, that when you've lied for so long and you've stuck to the lie for so long, the lie just has to get bigger and bigger because it, it, at that point, it is so big, you can never be honest about it. It's a heroic person to believe a lie for 20, 30, 40 years and face it and then have to deal with the emotions that could come from that shift in your belief system. It's like a shattering of a, it was a shattering of a belief system to me, even just getting well through naturopathic medicine and functional medicine. I couldn't believe it. My $80,000 private nursing school didn't teach anything that I needed in my own life to be well. Right. It, it was just shattering. And so you've got these doctors, two, three, four, $500,000 educations who are making whatever. You're asking them to look at something that could jeopardize that. And they don't want to, they don't want to know, even if it's true. I think that their subconscious is like, don't, that's dangerous. Don't look at that. That could, you know, that could really shake things up. And I've had that experience talking to doctors. Yeah. It would make us so uncomfortable that we'd rather just be comfortable in the lie or comfortable in the potential of the lie than work on exposing it. And the vaccine, what a beautiful lie to believe in. I mean, that's easy, right? Like if we could believe in that lie, then all you have to do is go get your two shots and then you don't have to wear a mask and you can get back to normal and you can hug your family. And and if everyone would just go do this simple task, we could all just, I mean, that's a beautiful lie to believe in. I wish, I wish there was something that we could do that was that simple that 
I wish I could believe it. It's easier. It's easier than eating right. It's easier than all the other things that we have to do to create a terrain that doesn't allow us to really have any problem with any of these viruses. And I want to end on this because I did a live about this and it was shared several times. And it was like, if we believe in this, right? So most of the country believes that vaccines are the way. And if we just all get our vaccine, then we can open up. But how, like, when was it going to be too many? Because we're already at 72 for 18 and under, and then we're going to add on the COVID, which is two to three a year. So we're going to be in the hundreds. So 20, 30, 40 years from now, if this is the way we're going, like, is it too much to give the kids 200 vaccines? Is it too much to get vaccines every month? Is it, when is it too much? Like, what number does it suddenly become too many? And I think that probably comes back to this whole idea of the mortality issue and not being okay with that either, because people are under the false assumption that, like you said, the vaccines, believing that they are the magic shield, they can take a sigh of relief knowing they're never going to die. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, you could die in the car accident on your way to go get your vaccine. You could die from the most freak accident happening, you know, after you just got your vaccine. The, the vaccine's not going to keep you from dying, but people want to cling to that so much because they're so uncomfortable with that reality of our own mortality and that being part of it and not really having that level of control. Yeah. And they want to believe that we can so much that they're willing to just basically, you know, accept all of this, all of the conditioning we've seen over the last year and couple months. It's just shocking to me what people have been willing to accept. And it has to come from something deeper than that. And really smart, good people that you would never think. Right. That's the part I think that still guts me is I'll hear about somebody who bought into it and it's shocking to me. I'm like, wow, this really works. It exactly. Really is effective. <laughs> exactly. It really is. And, it, and it's, it's a psychological manipulation, really, that people know that they're capable of doing. So the last thing I would say... As a question for somebody, so coming from a place of medical experience, for somebody who is still afraid and is staying in their house or is afraid to go out or now that they're hearing that some people aren't going to wear masks, they're afraid of that. What would you say to them? What would you say about that fear and whether it's necessary or not anymore? What would you tell them at this stage? I think at this stage, if they're still at home at this stage, then they probably have some pretty complex PTSD from what they've experienced watching through the news and and media. I would say that at this stage, there's a deep psychological pathology that's occurred because there's enough data, reasonable data that illustrates that you should not be afraid. It's just, it's, there's enough data if you really looked at data. But what I like to empower people with is we have treatments. So find a doctor who understands that, get everything that you need in your home. And these treatments are so safe that any sniffle, flu, fever, anything that you get, that you start to panic and think this is it, you got COVID, you're going to die. You have treatments in your home, like empower yourself with that because there is no reason that this virus should be killing hardly anybody because we have everything that we need to stop it from causing death. Mm -hmm. And what a beautiful opportunity because all the things that we're learning about it, guess what? It works for any virus. <laughs> so it's not just like COVID treatment. It's like right. virus treatment, vitamin D. I mean, vitamin D. Vitamin D is such an important part of the COVID conversation that we're really learning just the importance of it. 
and some other things in your home that you can have that you can use and to feel really empowered and feel empowered not only about against COVID, but everything else that you could possibly get and will get. And claiming that power, like you're saying, by claiming that responsibility over your body and setting it, I always say setting it up to be the best foundation it can be for whatever it encounters. Yeah, whatever. That's the only power you have, really, the only control you have at that point. So where can people find out more about this, whether it's about natural treatments for things like this, illnesses and COVID and whatnot, as well as following you on social media for more information for things that you're involved in? Yeah. So if I'm just in, on social media under Laura Menard RN, I don't have a business page that's super, has a large reach, but you can reach me there. My doctor, who is brilliant, who has studied COVID extensively and can really support people through getting their bodies ready for that. Her website is auburnnaturopathicmedicine.com. And if people message me, they can ask me and I can make a personal referral as well and can kind of get them started with that process if they want to go that route. And then I love American frontline doctors. Any, you know, people will be like, I, th- I was exposed, you know, I, I was exposed, what should I do? And I'm like, make a telehealth appointment with American frontline doctors and just be prepared, be prepared. And so they are doing telehealth, which I think is great. So even if your doctor isn't um, aware that there are treatments or isn't allowed to prescribe treatments, there are doctors that are doing that. And so those are my two resources that I would recommend. And then spell your first and last name for everybody so that they can find you easily on Facebook. Sure. It is Laura Menard, L-A-U-R-A-M-I-N-A-R-D. And then also with an Instagram page or primarily Facebook? Primarily Facebook. Okay, perfect. Well, I appreciate you taking time out of your day. I know you're on the way to a conference that you're dealing with now, and I'm happy that we're going to have this series and continue to offer expertise from people that have it to share and, again, have not been really utilized. So I appreciate your time, Laura. And if anybody wants to go check out her website, make sure to do that and follow her and stay connected with her and her resources for natural health so we can continue to build that foundation that keeps us all in a better place. Thanks again, Laura. Thank you. Bye-bye.